Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are beginning a two-parter on the Gospel of John. Now, as I mentioned in my tirade about the lectionary last time, there is no year devoted to the Gospel of John alone. We only get Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who are known collectively as the synoptic Gospels because they see with one eye the events of Jesus' life. Mark probably coming first, and then Matthew and Luke basing their works on and embroidering on Mark's Gospel. But then we have the Gospel of John, and to even a casual reader of gospel literature, it is very evident how different this gospel is from the others. So why is that, how it got to be that way, and what it means will be our topic for today. Now, Dad, you have a bold thesis to advance about the role and importance of the gospel of John, not just in the New Testament, but in the whole development of Christianity. So why don't you lay that right out there for us? Well, I don't know how bold it is. It's pretty traditional. Uh, actually, that the Gospel of John forms the bridge between the earlier uh, synoptic narratives of the Gospel story uh, and the development in the early uh, Christian church, the early Catholicism, as it's called, of the doctrines of the Trinity and the doctrines of the person of Christ, Christology, respectively enunciated at the Council of Nicaea in 325, the doctrine of the Trinity, and that was consolidated in 381 at the Council of Constantinople. And then um, the uh, doctrine of the two natures in one person at the Council of Chalcedon in um, 451. Uh, So how do we get from the Galilean miracle worker who died in agony on the cross in the synoptic story to the divine person of the Son of God incarnate who gives his life uh, uh, to redeem uh, suffering and sinful humanity. How do we do that? How does that happen? Uh, And the bold thesis, as you put it, is that the Gospel of John provides the bridge. Now, you're saying this in a very relaxed, happy, theologian kind of way that this was a good thing. But I think precisely the boldness of the claim is that any respectable New Testament critic, quote unquote, from especially days of yore, but plenty of days of today (laughs) as well, would be horrified and shocked by this development and see it as a total betrayal of the of the kerygma um, and a stepping away from solid history rather than uh, development to be honored and praised and believed in. So where do you get off, man? (laughs) Well, yeah, let's deal with the difficulties because they're serious and you can't really understand the achievement uh, that constitutes this bridge until you face right up front with all the difficulties involved in it. Let me mention just first of all, it would be a fallacy to assume that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are faith-free, historically neutral portraits of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. If you're assuming that that means because they're earlier, they're less Uh, uh, narratives constructed from the perspective of the Easter victory of the crucified Jesus, you're sadly mistaken. There are no less uh, documents of from faith for faith than the Gospel of John. Nevertheless, in the Synoptic Gospels, you have a narrative of what is assuredly a human being like you and me in all respects except for the uniqueness of his particular life way. Uh, uh, And that is what the Gospel of John is accused of um, uh, obscuring. Jesus seems to appear in the Gospel of John more like a divinized being than a normal human. Uh, There's even a term for this, uh, theos aner, a divine man, a god striding on the earth as Ernst Kaseman polemically put, uh, characterized Jesus in the Gospel of the John, never in a passive position, always in an active mode, always in charge, never flummoxed, never uh, uh, defeated. Uh, he appears more like a character in a Hindu tale or a Greek myth 
than what the synoptics uh, show us. I have a colleague here at Roanoke College, uh, Anil Shenda, he's a mathematician, who, uh, out of curiosity, some years ago, went to see the movie, Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of Christ. Now, whatever you think of the merits of Mel Gibson as a cinematographer <laughs> is not relevant here. What's important is what Shinda, growing up on the Hindu tales of the gods, said to me about this. He said, I was very surprised at how human Jesus was and wow. how realistically he was depicted. I think that even though Mel Gibson, I, as I understand it, took his primary lead from the Gospel of John. Anyway, that's the accusation. Has John turned the synoptic narrative uh, into a myth of God incarnate, like in Homer's tales or Hindu tales? Yeah, I think you can see... Uh, just the one that's always been most striking to me is that um, the the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, I, I guess Luke already deletes it, but for it, John doesn't just delete it. He transforms it into this kind of calm, you know, into your hands, I commend my spirit. Like you don't, you, you can't really imagine someone who's actually been nailed to a cross ending things that way. But he's master of the situation, not not victim in any way in that depiction. Yeah, I think this will come up later, John's relationship to the synoptic tradition. But I think there are certain affinities uh, between Luke's gospel and the gospel of John, not yeah. least of all the one you just mentioned, the omission of the cry of dereliction, where Jesus dies peacefully in the gospel of Luke, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And in John, Jesus announces triumphantly as he dies, it is finished, right? Now, on top of that, even a casual reader, as you remarked in the beginning, will notice that the plot line in the Gospel of John has dramatically altered the plot line we have in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, beginning with uh, the stunning relocation of the cleansing of the Jerusalem temple from the end of the story, where it is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to the very beginning. Now, this has surely got to strike readers as odd. It's almost as if John is making a kind of shot across the bow at the very beginning of his gospel. <laughs> yeah, right. Saying, Jesus's story is about his conflict with the temple in Jerusalem. And indeed, that's exactly what unfolds in John. The whole story of Jesus is reorganized around three trips to Jerusalem and the temple on the occasion of three notable Jewish festivals. Well, actually, it's even more than that. I mean, there are three Passovers in John, but there are several other festivals. There's there's um, the Feast of Tabernacles in John 7. There's Hanukkah. Often it's hidden under the word dedication in John 10. I just did a, an issue of Theology and a Recipe on that. But, you know, it's it's even identified as wintertime. And uh, that's calling back uh, the, the Maccabean cleansing of the temple after the um, pagan uh, Antiochus Epiphany has despoiled it with a sacrifice of a pig to Zeus. So very much calling up on those strong themes and saying something is seriously wrong with the temple here. And Jesus visits repeatedly, not just at the very end, the way it is in the synoptics, in order to set things right again. That's right. And the only place where John reveals both his knowledge of the synoptic tradition and follows it quite carefully, is in John 6 running on into John 7, where you have the feeding of the multitude in the wilderness, Jesus walking on the water, uh, and these episodes follow, and then following one another in exactly the same order you find in, in the synoptics. That, that's not accidental, of course. That's a deliberate use of the Galilean ministry episode but here in John, it becomes all about the manna in the wilderness. It, all, it becomes all about uh, the fulfillment of Jesus uh, as the bread from heaven, 
who gives his life for the world, to the Exodus theme, the wilderness theme of wandering in the wilderness and being fed by manna. So it's much more like taking taking the stories, which in the synoptics kind of speak for themselves, and using them instead as the occasion to engage in extended preaching and explanation on the, the deeper, higher meaning. Right. I think that's right. I wouldn't want to say deeper or higher. I just want to say at this point, different. Okay, you know, fair enough. There, there's something going on here that we have to figure out. Now, another dramatic change, we've already mentioned that the cleansing of the temple is moved to the very beginning of John. And in the synoptics, that's the occasion for the temple authorities to conspire the murder of Jesus. It's not at all what triggers the conspiracy to put Jesus to death in John. It's the raising of Lazarus uh, in John chapter 11. This is a very curious story, too. It has absolutely no parallels in uh, the Synoptic Gospels, except for the names. Mary and Martha, the women sisters, are named in the Gospel of Luke, and also the beggar in Jesus' parable uh, of the poor man is named Lazarus. And so, like I suggested earlier, there are certain affinities we can see with the Gospel of Luke that are emerging here. There's also the raising of the son of the widow of Nain. So the synoptics do Mm. remember Jesus raising others. But it's interesting in the synoptic versions, it doesn't in any way seem to be a prefigurement of Jesus' resurrection. It seems to be more like an Elijah-Elisha type miracle of of restoring a lost son to an impoverished widow. Whereas in Lazarus, there's just this laser focus on the whole idea of resurrection. And it is clearly some kind of prefigurement of Jesus' resurrection, but also somehow clearly saying, and yet this is not what's going to happen to Jesus. What happens to him will be uh, constitutively different in some way that we don't know how just yet. That's right. And also there's a very interesting uh, tweak uh, uh, or expression of John's theology in the interchange with uh, the sisters when Jesus greets the sisters of Lazarus, is it Mary who meets him first or Martha? Now it's, it slips my mind. Martha comes first, and she kind of gently protests, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Or she, And then she continues, but he will be raised uh, in the resurrection. And then Jesus reply, replies, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And so somehow in this episode, Jesus is saying the resurrection is not some future event for which you have to wait an uh, unspecified amount of time. The resurrection has become present with Jesus, who then affects what he speaks in raising Lazarus from the tomb. And that's why the authorities say, we got to get rid of this guy. Yeah, it's interesting because that also suggests that there is this generalized belief in resurrection, as we talked about in an episode last year, and that, you know, Martha, like many grieving people, is like, yeah, 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 I know I will see him again, you know, in heaven, in the resurrection. But that doesn't help me right now, does it, Jesus? And to that grief, Jesus counterposes his, I am the resurrection. Right. And so that that kind of is what scholars call an expression of realized eschatology instead of future eschatology. It's resurrection's not out there in the future. It's breaking in and it's present right now. And that's exactly what triggers the authorities' decision to kill Jesus. We have to entomb this guy to show the world that he's a faker, a phony. That he is not the resurrection and the life. Right. And, and then the high priest says so pregnantly, it is better that one man perish than, rather than the entire people mm. uh, because of the th- thought that Jesus is bringing the resurrection into the present threatens the very viability of the temple establishment or something like that. Right. Now, Dad, I know you're not super, super crazy about these uh, did it really happen type questions, but uh, what do you think about Lazarus? I mean, does it? Do you think it's going back to an uh, a core story that was passed down? I find that I have to admit less plausible than other uh, stories passed along. Yeah, that's a, a I, you're right. I really 
am kind of agnostic about affirming or disconfirming the historicity of these stories. Clearly, the raising of Lazarus in the Gospel of John is a highly theologically deliberate and constructed narrative. So whether it goes back to a historical kernel or not, uh, you know, some people have speculated that perhaps Lazarus is the mysterious beloved disciple that shows up in the Passion narrative. But then why not say his name again? (laughs) I will um, say a few words about this when we get to Raymond Brown. Let's hold off on that for now. Okay. On that general problem of the historicity of John. Okay, and finally, I think one of the most important things to observe, in the Synoptic Gospels, the plot line has three revelatory scenes in which either the Father identifies Jesus or Jesus identifies his Father. And those three scenes are the baptism of Jesus, the transfiguration of Jesus, and Jesus' prayer to his Abba Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a triptych, if you will, a threefold scene that develops the mutual identification of the Father and the Son. Surprisingly, when you realize it, all three of those episodes are referred to but not narrated in the Gospel of John. If you look carefully at the opening chapter 1, the story of Jesus' baptism is not told, nor is the divine voice from heaven identifying him spoken. It's not told directly. It's referred to, yeah. But the, the story that we have in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is not told. And in its place, you have John the Baptist proclaiming Jesus as the Lamb of God. Right, and he reports that he saw... saw something happen with the the heaven and the dove. But yeah, we don't see it firsthand. We only see it secondhand. We don't see it. Yeah, it's it's reported, but it's not told. Now, of course, what that suggests is that readers of John will be familiar with the synoptic story, just as they will know that the cleansing of the temple comes at the end, right? So John is signaling to his readers, I'm doing something with the story you already know. Uh, right, right. Now, further proof of that comes in John chapter 12, where you have references to, for example, Mark chapter 8. Uh, in Mark chapter 8, you have Peter's confession of Christ, you have the um, passion prediction, you have the sayings about discipleship, and then you have the transfiguration story into chapter 9. Now, in John chapter 12, you have all of those things virtually in sequence. Jesus' passion prediction, though it's not told to the disciples, it's told to the folks in the temple in Jerusalem. And then in 831 and following, Jesus talks about the nature of discipleship. If you abide in my word, truly you are my disciples. And then finally, I think chapter 12, verse 28, is really stunning. Uh, Jesus says something like this, My soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this very purpose I've come into the world. Now, that's a direct allusion to Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yeah, of course. Father, deliver me from this cup if it be possible. And here you have Jesus, he doesn't, uh, John's Jesus doesn't deny saying that. He, in fact, quotes it and says, yes, I said it, but he he inverts the meaning, right? Uh, No, for this very reason, he, he comes to the conclusion that Jesus does in the Garden of Gethsemane, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will uh, be done. And then immediately following that, there's a kind of a, Uh, allusion to the transfiguration story when the crowd hears a clap of thunder upon Jesus uh, praying, Father, glorify thy name, and the Father replies from heaven, "Uh, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So there's, again, John's redaction of the transfiguration story. 
And uh, I think what's extra interesting about this is it follows immediately upon some Greeks coming to meet Jesus. And up to this point in the story, Jesus has said, my hour has not come. My hour has not come. The second Gentiles come looking for Jesus, Jesus replies, okay, now my hour has come. And the sequence follows. And so this is another hugely striking difference from um, at least the Pauline literature and Luke Acts, maybe Matthew. Mark doesn't seem quite so stressed out about Gentiles or, or hasn't like encountered the problem so sharply yet. But in most of the rest of the New Testament literature, Jew-Gentile disunity is a huge challenge that needs to be overcome. John has no feeling of that at all. You know, he's totally laid back. I mean, enemies are equally Jew and Gentile, and Gentile interest here is fine. It's really, as we'll get to a little bit later, internal Jewish disunity that that troubles and occupies John. But uh, to me, the, it's fascinating that in a, a relaxed atmosphere towards Gentiles, it's their seeking him out that triggers this, um, as you said, transfiguration Garden of Gethsemane episode. Yeah, right. The uh, presence of the Gentiles, of course, there is a very interesting thing, and it has, I think, to do with John's unique theology of the passion lifted up on the cross. He will draw all people to himself and things like that. Uh, a couple of more things that are about the difference between uh, John and the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, you know, in the Synoptic Gospels, of course, Jesus proclaims the nearness of the reign of God, the Basileia to Theo, is breaking in in Jesus's ministry, especially in his miracles of exorcism and healing. But except for the feeding of the multitude, none of the synoptic miracles are retold in the Gospel of John. We have miracles that have no parallel in the synoptics, like the changing water into wine at the wedding at Cana, right? Or the, um, the healing of the man born blind uh, swimming in the pool of Bethsaida. Well, I, I mean, there are healings of the blind, but not anywhere near the level of importance as John 9 has in, in the Gospel of John. Right. John 9, yeah, is, is really important, uh, lengthy story. And exorcism is so important to the synoptics, and it's all but absent in John. It is absent. I mean, at one point in chapter 9, Jesus and the Jews accuse each other of being possessed by a demon. But there's no exorcism stories as such as something we'll get onto, I think, in the next episode. So the kingdom of God proclamation is absent. The miracle stories and exorcisms of the synoptics are absent. And the wonders that Jesus performs in the Gospel of John are quite deliberately named Samea in Greek signs. That's a very interesting renaming of them because it means that not that they're proofs, but that they're instruction, that they're Torah, that they're revelations of the saving will of God. And that's how they function, culminating in the raising of Lazarus all of the, them functioning to proclaim uh, the will of God that his uh, lost and suffering sinful creature should have life and have it more abundantly. And likewise with the parables, the parables of Jesus and the synoptics disappear and they're replaced by what I've called the Johannine enigmas, uh, the riddles, the plays on words, and all of those are lead up to the I am sayings. Of course, this is in the Greek language, ego ami, and I am. And this is a play on the divine name of the Lord from Exodus chapter 3, the Tetragrammaton. And Jesus is in the Greek language taking up the etymology of this divine name, I am. And interestingly enough, he's not simply saying, I am, in a kind of a bold identification with the Lord, whom he calls his heavenly Father, but he takes this I am as a subject to which he attaches paradoxical predicates. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life, etc., etc., uh, and so in place of the parables of the kingdom of God and the synoptics, you have Jesus self-predicating in all these saving ways. They're predications of salvation. 
I'm the divine giver of the bread that lead uh, and the water that leads to eternal life. The most striking, uh, for me, culmination of that series is when his arrest comes and the uh, the police basically are looking for him and they're saying, you know, where's this Jesus of Nazareth? Who is he? And Jesus says, I am. And that time it's just, I am. There's no further predicate. It's the closest he comes to simply echoing the divine name. And at that, they they stumble backwards and try again. And he says again, I am. And they, they have a hard time laying hands on him. But it's, it's interesting if, if the whole sequence, as you said, is paradoxical predicates, then the time Jesus most closely claims the name as such is the very moment at which he's about to be taken into the, the captivity of human powers and put to death. Great, Sarah. And that's also another retooling of the stories in the Synoptic Gospels. Because already in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus is on trial in the Sanhedrin, the high priest demands to know whether he is the Christ or the Son of Man, uh, something like that. And Jesus answers in the same bald way, I am. But there it brings down upon him the death sentence. And you see in Jot, Jesus announces, I am at his arrest, and it causes the police to fall down in shock and (laughs) and dismay at at arresting the divine son of God in the flesh. But in either case, there is an ironic outcome to Jesus' identification with that name, for sure. So, and sure, just yeah. just to follow up on the parables, I, I don't think you've mentioned yet. There's also no Sermon on the Mount slash plane slash boat that is so important to the the three synoptics. Now, Jesus does more talking in John than in any gospel, though Matthew has quite a lot too. But um, it's it's striking that this kind of centerpiece of Jesus' teaching is so um, either suppressed or transmuted beyond recognition as such. Yeah, what takes the place of those ethical discourses? In the synoptics is the lengthy farewell, it's called the farewell discourse, that runs, what is it, from John 14 to 18 or something like that. And here, um, Jesus is laying down the, uh, in many different angles and coming back to the same theme again of love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this who lays down his life for his friends. By this they shall know them for their love for one another. And even the high priestly prayer in John 17, which brings the farewell discourse to a climax, is kind of the revelation of the eternal love between the Father and the Son, which has now, in Jesus' earthly way, reached down to the lost and dying creatures to incorporate them into this new unity that they may be one, Father, even as you and I are one. So the so-called ethical teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, etc., are here transposed into the uh, community of of agape love, uh, and that is how they are to abide in his word and live out the word that they abide in. He does a lot more uh, explaining, though, and is much less cryptic than he is in his little gems in the, the Sermon on the Mount, that's for sure. So I think the last last uh, point of comparison we want to look at before we kind of go into the, the theories of how this particular gospel came about is that for all that, the overall structure is still really, you know, uh, how Jesus came into existence, then all the stuff that he did, and then it finally leads up to a passion narrative followed by a resurrection narrative. And again, although there are you know notable differences, it's still fundamentally the same story that's being told. It's not a radically different story, and it has the same basic trajectory. And we have to explain both the similarity and the difference, don't we? That that would be that would be exactly what we want to do. But we had to lay out all these uh, difficulties or problems because, of course, when folks first become aware of this in detail. Uh, they are rather shocked by the liberty with which the Gospel of John seemingly rewrites the historical narrative that we have in the synoptics. Now, I already reminded readers at the beginning that this is somewhat of a fallacy because Matthew, Mark, and Luke are no less documents of Easter faith, written from faith for faith, in which the memories of Jesus of Nazareth are filtered by the, the uh, belief in his, 
that him who that he who was crucified has been raised and exalted and is the coming Lord of all creation. And so it's not like we have a historical Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke and a fictionalized God striding on the earth in John, as we'll now try to get into in some uh, details in the second podcast, especially, as we'll try to explain. And I think it's worth reminding that um, we have more about Jesus from more or less contemporaries than nearly or maybe any ancient person. He is so exceedingly well-documented. And in all of this documentation, not a single document does not speak of him as the one who is risen from the dead. So there's there's a, a kind of whatever you think about the historicity in any particular episode or case, the vast literature on Jesus, again, comparatively for the ancient worlds, is uh, all operates from the same a point of assumption that he is raised from the dead. And we just take that as read and, and we tell our story under those assumptions. Yeah, it's what I call epistemology of access. You cannot access this literature and understand it in the way that it is intended to be understood apart from sharing. And this, of course, is the work of the spirit that both inspires the biblical writers and illuminates the biblical readers or auditors without that spirit of, that gives faith in his resurrection. Uh, that's, that's the hermeneutical key to reading the scripture correctly. We've talked about that in a number of places, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's turn to um, interpretations of this data that we've now enumerated quite thickly. Well, there's obviously been a, you know a bunch of theories put forward to try to figure out why why is John so different? Uh, what was the occasion for it, and what were the sources he used differently? So why don't you talk us through the the major ones that are worth consideration here? There's obviously a lot of loony ones that we'll just pass quietly by. Right. I think just very simply. The traditional interpretation, widespread in the pre-Enlightenment church and all expressions, is governed by the prologue to John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That famous first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, uh, which told us from the very outset, that unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which tell the story of Jesus von unten, from below, in the Gospel of John, we are being told the story of Jesus von oben, from above, from the divine perspective. And that was simply the explanation of the difference, that uh, the one perspective sees Jesus from below, from the humanity that appears here, and the other, John's, tells the story from above, from what uh, God's perspective is. And as long as you have a simple doctrine of inspiration, there's no problem of access because the Spirit as much inspires the fun unten as the fun oben. And so there's no problem with John, the author, knowing about the, what happens in John chapter 1. He, he simply does, right? Like that would have been how they thought yeah, about and that, it. Yeah, that's the, that's the traditional explanation. Uh, and, of course, if you adopt the Chalcedonian two natures doctrine, of course, there are two different perspectives, the creaturely perspective and the creator's perspective. Right. And in the synoptics, we see things from creaturely perspective. In the uh, John, we see it from the creator's perspective. No problem, because in Christ, these two natures are one person, right? That, and that's Chalcedon. Beginning with the Enlightenment, uh, as these differences were uh, noticed and, and insisted upon as difficulties that demanded historical explanation, perhaps the most influential uh, explanation, especially in 19th century German scholarship, was the so-called Hellenization of the Gospel hypothesis famously associated with the brilliant church historian Adolf von Harnack. And here, reading about the Logos, the divine word, the word was with God, the Greek word for word is Logos, and that's almost a personified figure. The Logos you can talk about as if it was a person. 
the Logos figure, the Hellenization of the gospel folks said, this is not the word of the Lord of the Old Testament scriptures. This is the Logos of Neoplatonism or of Philo of Alexandria, who was much under the influence of Middle Platonism. Now, this is a whole different scheme. This is the idea that the cosmos exists in a series of emanations from the undifferentiated divine unity, so that what's ultimately God is transcendent beyond knowing, beyond stating, beyond speaking. But in its first self-reflection, the divine uh, articulates itself as a divine thought or word. And this divine thought or word is the rationality that then cascades out, outward and downward into the material world, forming and rationalizing and organizing all creatures. So the Logos is neither fully God nor fully creature, but he's the first and primary mediating being between them in Platonic philosophy. Right, which will get taken up in Arianism. So when this thesis is advanced, is it seen as, for example, trying to ditch embarrassing Hebrew scriptures? Is it seen as an apt missional move to translate into more accessible terms? Like I've been told in, in the uh, Chinese translation of the Bible, it begins, in the beginning was the Tao, um, you know, or is it seen as simply just a pure corruption of the, the proper synoptic, whatever, Pauline teaching of the gospel? Yeah, there's a, in the 19th century German scholarship, there's kind of a great renewal of Nestorianism. And <laughs> Nestorianism is, is interesting because uh, like Arianism, it insists on the creator-creature distinction. And the two natures distinction is far more important than the unity of person, which is also taught by Chalcedon. And so these scholars said, look it, given the Jewish background, there's an absolute disjunction ontologically between creator and creature. The two shall never mix. They are unmixable right? You can't confuse them. And so from the Jewish perspective, Jesus is a creature, and he must be a creature, and he can't stop being a creature. And he's not creator, he's creature, right? Right, right. Yes. As, as you see, many of the, the, the temple leaders objecting in their conversations with Jesus. Exactly. So, so far as the Hebrew Jewish perspective remains intact, the Logos doctrine cannot be Jewish. The Logos doctrine must be an import from Neoplatonic Greek philosophy. And that's the Hellenization of the gospel thesis. But that's not judged as like a, a missionally apt thing. It's judged as a destructive thing. Oh, yeah. This is, yeah, this is the whole, uh, Harnock also called it the intellectualizing of the gospel, away from the simple faith of Jesus in his loving heavenly father. That's pretty rich coming from an intellectual, but okay. It's hard to be patient with some of these 19th century <laughs> platitudes, but in, in, in any case, that's the Hellenization thesis, that, that the prologue of John is Greek philosophy and the whole story of Jesus has been rewritten from the perspective of Greek philosophy, and it's a disaster because now it requires us to believe dogmas about Jesus. Oh, that no. he was the incarnate God rather than Jesus' own simple human faith in his heavenly father. It's religion about Jesus rather than religion of Jesus. Exactly right. And that's what's gone wrong. The problem with the Hellenization thesis is twofold. And I think Raymond Brown did this very well in his commentary on John. He pointed out that the background to the prologue in John is the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible has all sorts of ways of, of speaking about divine self-mediation, the angel of the Lord, the captain of the armies of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, 
All of these figures indicate that there is also in the Hebrew Bible a knowledgeable distinction between God and God in God's self-revelation. And so the background Brown proved, I think, beyond a doubt of the prologue is in the Jewish tradition and not in some uh, false importation of Greek philosophy. But there's even a more important uh, refinement of the Hellenization thesis that comes, and now we're moving to the second ex- explanation of the problems, very influential uh, from the hands of Rudolf Bultmann. Naturally. And Bultmann hypothesized that it's not Greek philosophy in the sense of Neoplatonism that stands behind the Gospel of John. It's, dum dum Gnosticism. Oh, no. More specifically, Mandianism, which was a cult that developed around John the Baptist and uh, has uh, remnants to this day in India or something like that. Bultmann said, no, it's not a Hellenization of the gospel, but at the basis of the gospel of John is a Gnostic document which he called the sign source. And this is those seven signs or miracles in the Gospel of John, uh, which uh, structure much of the narrative uh, prior to the Passion. And Boltman said, look, at what we have here is a Gnostic telling of the story of Jesus, in which Jesus reveals himself as the revealer through these signs. And that was the origin of the Gospel of John. But then it was taken over by um, a series of ecclesiastical redactors who tried to modify this Gnostic source in a more, uh, quote, orthodox, end quote, direction uh, in order to avoid the, um, the, the absolute dualism of Gnostic or Docetic Christologies. And so for Boltman, that meant that uh, the Christian, not as opposed to Gnostic, interpretation of the Gospel of John has two great virtues. Number one, it demythologizes the primitive apocalyptic uh, understandings, future resurrection, things like that, in the synoptic tradition, and shows us that holding to these outmoded beliefs is no part of Christian faith. With sovereign freedom, it demythologizes the apocalyptic expressions uh, worldview. Just like Boltmann himself. Gee. Yeah, it does. Boltmann thought he was being very Johannine and demythologized. That's one virtue. Right, and the other virtue is that um, it reduces the cognitive claim of the gospel to the sheer bald assertion that what Jesus reveals is that he is the revealer. Punked. That's it. It's kind of like a snake biting its tail, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it struck many people that way. Boltman, of course, said, "Look at." No mythological, no philosophical, uh, no historical props to faith. The only prompt to faith is Jesus in the proclamation announcing that he is the revealer of God. Will you drop everything and trust the mere word of promise? That's it. The word alone. A word alone. No uh, supplements to uh, shore up faith in this. And that means that faith is then conceived as a decision, a human decision, to abandon all worldly securities and cast oneself, like Kierkegaard said, into the dark, trusting that one will be caught as one leaps from the roof of the flaming house. That seems like a damn fool thing to do. (laughs) Well, the flames are coming to get you. You've got to jump. (laughs) (laughs) So I can die by fire or die by plummeting to my death. Gee, what a happy set of alternatives. Yeah, right. 
I, I, I mean, like, I, again, in, in Boltmann's time and place, when maybe there was a, an overdetermined, over-rationalized Christian faith, I can I can imagine myself into a place where that would be a breath of fresh air, but it does not seem to me ultimately sustainable and doesn't really seem to finally do what the New Testament literature is doing, even what John is doing. I think the most important um, observation to be made here is both the 19th century liberal Hellenization thesis and Boltman's Gnostic sign source theory both locate the Gospel of John outside the mainstream of early Christian development. John is some phenomenon on the margins, which then, no matter how you read it, tragically or stupidly became the bridge to the future. Uh, and Boltman's is an, an effort uh, to make the best he can out of this uh, tragic situation. I would say something like that in the final analysis. Um, I want to mention here, uh, b- before we go on to the alternative, also Raymond Brown, the Roman Catholic biblical scholar who published Uh, a great commentary on the Gospel of John that I've mentioned already, and wrote a book called The Community of the Beloved Disciple. Uh, And this, too, is another iteration of the the out-of-the-mainstream location of, of, of John and his tradition. What Brown hypothesized was that there was a founding figure the anonymously identified beloved disciple whose testimony particularly attends the uh, passion and resurrection stories uh, in John and whose testimony is frequently lifted up and claimed as the source and uh, authentication of, of a community of believers and that the gospel of John develops in a series of redactions that originate from this community founded by the beloved disciple. And that explains why John is so different from the synoptics. And it's only in chapter uh, 21, which many scholars think is an addendum, because the gospel seems to end naturally at the end of chapter 20, And here you have the story of of Jesus appearing uh, to um, Peter, James, and John, and the beloved disciple at the seashore in Galilee. And the question comes up, what is Jesus' relationship to Peter who denied him? And what then is the relation of Peter to the beloved disciple? And then they're saying that this is a story that reflects how at the end, at the, after the end of the career of the beloved disciple, the uh, uh, unique and off-to-the-margin tradition of the beloved disciple was re-mainstreamed, reunited with the traditions of Peter behind the synoptic gospels. Mm. And that, that explains that weird little bit where, like, now Jesus didn't actually say the beloved disciple would never die. Okay, guys? You know, it's like, why is right. this in here? So that seems to be part of this, as you say, if this is like a little background explanation about how to reunite these things, that, that's part of the story. I want, and final comment about Raymond Brown is this, this is a classically uh, Roman Catholic way of, of interpreting the early Christian history. Uh, not that that's bad. I think it has some uh, interesting and fascinating aspects to it. But for in Brown's interpretation, there is an authentic deposit of faith that goes back to the testimony of the beloved disciple. But the deposit of faith is not, as it were, completely self-explicating all at once. It must undergo a development in which all of its implications slowly and gradually emerge uh, in the community of faith and then ultimately in the reconciliation of this development with Peter and his tradition. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, now we come to our favorite 
favored explanation, Sarah. <laughs> and since you recently read uh, the book by J. Lewis Martin, History and Theology in the Fourth Gospel, why don't you tell us what you learned from reading that? Uh, yeah, actually, it's, it's kind of funny. I wasn't even thinking of, of uh, these episodes we talked about doing, but I was perusing the shelves of the seminary library here in Tokyo, and I knew uh, J. Lewis Martin as a Galatians commentator, but not as a John commentator. So when I found that, I was like, oh, well, this seems worth reading. And it's a, it's a pretty short little book, so and, and I would say quite accessible to anyone with a basic theological education. Um, but so his thesis is that... Um, the I mean, there, there's this, you know, specific community experience, perhaps, like Brown says, but he locates its distinctiveness somewhat differently. And what the, the kind of seminal clue, I would say, is um, John 9, verse 22. Um, so this is in the, the story of the man born blind, the very long story, kind of in the middle of the whole gospel. And the, the comment is his parents, the blind man's parents, said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So the idea is, is working from this um, almost after the fact clue, because this, again, if this is reflecting when it really happened, that would not have been the case. So the idea is that this comment reflects a later stage after the destruction of the temple when um, non-Jesus believing Judaism is trying to regroup and figure out what on earth it's going to do now that Jerusalem has been destroyed, the temple's been knocked down, it's turning to its uh, rabbinic resources that you know date back hundreds of years, first to the Babylonian exile. But there is this real issue of division within the community that there are other Jews who are saying that Jesus was, in fact, the promised Messiah. And there's a severe split within the community. And at this point, the power still resides with the non-Jesus believing leaders. And so the idea is that um, an edict of some of some serious consequence was made that any Jesus-believing Jew is no longer welcome in the synagogue. In fact, is going to be put out, possibly persecuted, possibly killed. And the, so from there, Martin looks at other evidence within the gospel. He looks at some rabbinic literature, though it's really hard to get good dating on things because of the heavy redaction that uh, rabbinic literature undergoes by the time it's it's put in its semi-final form starting in the year 200. Um, AD. Um, but he goes through the whole whole gospel and makes an argument that what is happening and the reason why John is written the way it is, is to tell a two-level drama. And I found this quite intriguing and quite profound. So the idea is that there is the drama of Jesus himself. But there is also the drama of the Jesus-believing community a few generations later who are experiencing something akin to what Jesus went through by being, you know, reviled and put out of the synagogue and rejected by the religious leaders who ought to be believing in him. And so, for instance, the man born blind is a, a kind of an iconic figure of somebody within this community who is being rejected as Jesus was rejected. And so it's deliberately written to stack them. And, you know, that makes both a lot of literary sense, but I think theologically, you know, when we talked last season, Dad, about um, the last third of Acts and how you have this stacked narrative of Paul and his passion, which does not end in death because that would be too much like Jesus, but that a true disciple of Christ, Jesus, like Paul, is going to experience something like what Jesus himself experienced. Uh, we can see, I think, that what Martin tries to show is the same kind of, of logic at work here. And then the, the final move Martin makes, and, and this uh, kind of made my heart sing, to be honest, is that um, the way this happens, the way the Jesus' narrative can have a, for John's community, but also for our community, secondary narrative laid on top of it and conform to it is actually through the the paracletes, the, the comforter, the advocate, the, the present Holy Spirit. And so for Martin's interpretation, um, the Holy Spirit is the, the key figure in knitting together these two layers of action and will continue to be the key actor in all Christian community premised on on uh, on Jesus himself. So that I think I just you know I, I'm giving just a very short praise here but the, I think his his reading of the literary evidence and 
using it to reconstruct, and I would say in an appropriately modest kind of way, historical circumstances that would lead to this, I found it to be an extremely compelling argument and did did more to explain how John is the way it is than any any of I mean the other theories that you've put forward here already. Yeah, that's great, Sarah. Thank you for that uh, praise of, of, of or synopsis of Martin's argument. It makes me think of a comment he made when I was in seminar with him as a graduate student when he was reflecting on this two-level drama and the freedom with which the Johannine community, uh, as you know, you could say from a strictly historical point of view, put words in Jesus's mouth. Uh, and Martin was taking up that objection, and he said, au contraire, how real Jesus was to them, hmm. and how real the promised paraclete, through whom Jesus, the risen Christ, continued to speak to them, even now in their present difficulties. Such was their belief in the resurrection that Jesus was not a dead uh, voice in the past, but the Jesus of the past who lived and died in this way in the one uh, level story uh, of the drama continues to be the Lord who speaks to his people uh, uh, through the uh, preaching and teaching of the community. Yeah, I think in that respect, you you really see how then the sermon, and if we take John as actually an extended sermon, is the primary Christian genre. And, in, you know, the sermons that I think of, speak most to us are the ones in which we are invited into the story. We walk into it. We experience the drama. We see how it is, in fact, playing out in our own lives. And there's space enough that it can actually fit in all the very individual narratives of each parishioner who comes to hear. But at the same time, it's the common story that's centered on the person of Jesus who who really is there. And that's, I, I think, you know, it, it touched all my Lutheran buttons too, but Martin really stresses that that Jesus really is there to the community, even in this second tier drama that he's telling. And therefore, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that continues to be the case. And let's just make a note that the, the dialectic here between the Word and the Spirit is preserved. As right, we've right. said... The Johannine story does not repudiate the synoptic story. It simply retells it in fresh ways uh, for teaching purposes, but also for purposes of encouragement and edification to the community experiencing uh, the same persecution. Jesus in the farewell discourse says, as they hated me, so they will hate you also. I think also what this shows is, um, against, as we've talked on and off in this episode, against a, an overly fixated question about historical authenticity. Like, does the New Testament tell it the way it, I, I can like give you know, the way it really happens. What I think we see in the New Testament already is the missional move that, that to only have a history without a missional intention of declaring this word by the power of the living spirit to people is to have a dead history. And so um, I, I read a commentary some years back on the, the pastoral epistles making the argument that it's often likewise seen as a kind of degenerate version of Paul because it's not authentic Pauline and it, it's too compromised with Greco-Roman stuff. And, you know, sure, there are some things in the pastorals I love less than in the authentic Paul. But the argument <laughs> made that I, that I found really compelling is saying that if Paul is to live, he has to move into these new places. And one of the things we actually see laid out in the pastorals is how do you speak Paul into these, you know, maybe a little too respectable Greco-Roman situations, but it's a real place that the gospel really needs to go. And I think you can see the same uh, logic at work here in John taking up the synoptic tradition. And that means that you have to see the New Testament literature not only as preserving a real history, but also as a history that continues to enact itself and to spread out and have real life impact. And of course, that's that's messy business, but I think that's greatly encouraging to those of us who are living so many years later in such very different places and circumstances that that's what the word does. It just keeps going out and the spirit keeps applying it. And we see that template already happening, even in our Holy Scripture. I think that's amazing. 
Yeah, that's really great. Now, uh, to try to bring some of these themes to a conclusion then, Sarah, uh, let me say a couple of things here. Okay. Uh, first, first to your remarks here. What an authorization and therefore a responsible freedom this interpretation of John gives to every Christian preacher. That in the sermon, one gets to the point where one says gospel in the name of the Lord, where the preacher says, thus says the Lord to the concrete congregation and delivers the word of God. Uh, That's what the gospel of John authorizes you to do. Secondly, how that freedom is responsible is this dialectic of the Spirit and the Word. The Spirit will bring you to all truth by recalling my word, Jesus says in the farewell discourse. So it's not like you just get to make things up, to, <laughs> you know, to suit the zeitgeist and not the Heiligergeist. <laughs> yeah, the perceived needs of the day. It's by recalling the word of Jesus that one is enabled concretely to ask what, not what would Jesus do or what did Jesus do, but what is Jesus doing? And then to say it, right? And to say it concretely uh, to, the, to the congregation that's listening to the sermon. Thirdly, I think this is very important here now to focus in on uh, because of our concern about anti-Judaism. What Martin's explanation reveals is that the context in which the Gospel of John originates is thoroughly Jewish or Judaic, beginning with the secret visit of the Pharisee Nicodemus to Jesus in chapter 3, up until the expulsion passages that you referred to, like 1242, where it reads, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, think Nicodemus, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess it for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human glory more than the glory that comes from God. Right. So what we have attested here is an inter-Jewish brouhaha, as you were talking about, that is occasioned by the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem in the Roman War in the year 70, and that leads to the consolidation of the Jewish synagogue uh, as the Pharisees transition into becoming the early rabbis of Orthodox Judaism, which can no longer tolerate blaspheming Jesus believers in in the synagogues. They must be expelled. So that helps us understand two things, I think, very clearly that the conflict of Jesus with Judaism, so-called, is his conflict not with the Jewish people, but with the temple and the attempt to retain the theology of the temple without realizing, as Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, the hour is now coming when the Father will seek those who worship him in spirit and in truth which occurs now by abiding in Christ, the Logos who is tabernacling with humanity in allusion to the ancient theology of worship in the earliest traditions of Israel, the tabernacle. Before the temple, very notably, yeah. Yeah, the forerunner of the temple. Jesus has become the temple of, the movable temple of God, no longer fixed to the city of Jerusalem because of the mobility of the Word and the Spirit. So finally, that leads us to the neuralgic problem of the the portrait of the Jews in the Gospel of John. And the Greek word here is eudaioi. And if you look at that word carefully, it might perhaps be better translated the Judeans rather than the Jews. Now, why do I say that? Because in the Gospel of John, the Jews who are hostile to Jesus are almost invariably associated with the temple establishment. They represent the temple establishment. They want to preserve the temple establishment. They want to kill Jesus because he threatens the temple establishment. 
that's the temple in Jerusalem in the in the shrunken territory of Judea. And therefore, they are called Eudaioi, the Judeans. I think that historical insight helps us in two ways. Number one, it relocates the polemic uh, back into this first century situation. And it obviously makes sense out of the fact that Jesus, his disciples, and most of the believers, other than the Samaritan women and those few Gentiles in chapter 12, are also Judeans or Jews, right? Number one. The second way it helps us is that it shows us that a divorce occurred between early Catholic Christianity and normative Judaism. Uh, and that uh, uh, we see that divorce occurring in the redactions of the Gospel of John. All right. Well, yeah. And that's so important because it's it's very easy to read John and just get tripped up on the Jews. The Jews, the Jews did that as if the Jews were something other than what John himself and his people were. So it's it's so important. A change in terminology may be helpful there. All right. Well, I think this has been great, Dad, in, in laying out where John came from and what it intends to do. So in our next episode, we will turn to doing what John wants us to do with his gospel, which is actually harvest its fruits for Christian faith. Groovy. Looking forward to it. <laughs> Groovy. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.